Welcome to my podcast. This is David Suisa. Today we're going to talk about happiness. What is happiness? What is the Jewish take on happiness? And how realistic is it to attain deep happiness? My guest is Rabbi Mordechai Finley and my friend, who is the uh, leader, co-founder with his wife of Oratora, a traditional progressive, I don't want to say synagogue, a spiritual center in Mar Vista. Okay. That's fair. That's fair enough. He's also professor of the Academy for Jewish Religion, where he's taught liturgy, Jewish mysticism, and spirituality. And he's also got earned his PhD in religion, social ethics at USC. Mordechai, welcome. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So I called you a few months ago, and I said, you know, I would love to do a cover story in the Jewish Journal on happiness. This is a subject that I've read about for years. It might be the most essential issue in life. How can I be happy? We always ask ourselves, I want to be happy, uh, and what can I do to be happy? And so many books have been written on it. So I figured I'm going to ask Mordechai Finley to do the Jewish take on happiness. What went through your mind when I asked that? Really happy you asked me. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm an avid student of Greek philosophy, and if you study, uh, especially uh, Socrates and Plato, and the Stoics, and the Middle Neoplatonists, and when you study them, and the idea of eudaimonia, which is uh, the EU prefix means good, and daimon means spirit, so good-spiritedness, and that often is translated as happy. But when you hear the word happy, you think of a person who has a, is a state of pleasure from gratification. You know, things are going well for them. Something happened that made them happy. But the Greek idea of happiness is, a more, is more with a, in align with a positive psychology movement today, which is authentic happiness, which is the name of Martin Seligman's book. So deep, sustained well-being. And from the Greek tradition, because one knows oneself and one knows one's purpose and one has some degree of life figured out. So this kind of happiness is not superficial happiness, but a deep sense of happiness. At the same time, when I look at uh, our tradition, which is however you want to frame it, it's a tradition of duty, of mitzvah. And uh, there is a term, a simchat mitzvah, the, the, the joy of the commandment, which sounds like an oxymoron to most people because they think happiness and joy is when you're not obligated, when you're doing whatever you want. And the idea that one can find happiness in fulfilling one's obligation, you know, it's just not a common idea with many people. So right. between the Jewish and the Greek, I'm so glad you asked me because I just couldn't <laughs> wait to write it down. Well, you know, what's interesting is your, your cover story, which has really made waves across the country. We even heard from a professor in, in Harvard. and It's like a journey where you start off with the conventional definitions of happiness. You go into the Greek, you go into Seligman, and then you slowly take us into a much deeper place, which is the Jewish take on happiness. Uh, talk about that that transition. Well, you know, the, the Jewish word for happiness is osho. And uh, I teach on the top. I've taught the topic for more than 20 years. Uh, uh, the book called Stages of Faith came out by James Fowler, Martin Seligman's book. So I've been on this topic for, I probably touch on it at least once a month in my synagogue and at the high holidays and so forth. Because people are not happy. And they think they're not happy because they're not getting their way. And I say to people, who says you should get your way? Maybe your spouse should get their way. I mean, you're not the center of the universe. They said, well, how do I know who is? I said, great, so you want wisdom. Yeah, I said, so wisdom and virtue are precursors to happiness. People go, oh, so how do I get wisdom? I said, thank you. That's the question. Wow. So, you know, the minute a person says, I'm unhappy, they've opened the door to the, uh, to the deep study of it. And so, you go from Osher to Ashrei. Yes, exactly. So uh, I... I in wanting the Jewish take on happiness, he put the question before me, I went up and for the first time I looked at every time Ashrei appears in the in the Bible. Now explain to our listeners the difference between Osher and Ashrei. Well, Osher is a noun, uh, good-spiritedness, and Ashrei is used as an adjective, like Ashrei Yoshe Vetecha, those who dwell in your abode have Osher. So mm -hmm. Ashrei is the term that's used over and over again as an adjective to denote somebody who's in this unique spiritual state of having osho. And in a way, happy is an adjective, so yeah. it's a more appropriate word. Right, but happiness, remember, understood at the deepest level, right. which means living stoically with purpose mm -hmm. and not being thrown off because life's not going your way. 
So I remember when I was a young rabbi, uh, you know, I'm in my 30s and a woman in her 50s comes in and she says to me, you know, her husband's not this and the kids are not grateful and the housekeeper's not good. And she says, you know, Rabbi, I'm not a happy camper. And I wanted to say, this is not a summer camp. <laughs> you know, so I, you know, and I try to gently say, look, you're a mom and you have a husband, and you have kids and, and they depend on you. And if your well-being is based on you're getting your way, things are going your way, no one's going to be happy. So there has to be a person that says, I'm deeply connected with my life's purpose. I can hold my ground. I can hold my center and bring some sanity into the situation. So that's, that's Osher for me, you know, a deep kind of deep sense of maturity. So I look up all the sources on Ashrei, you know, and my instinct at every turn is, uh, is validated. It's, you know, who's, who's Ashrei, you know, the person who is, uh, 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 is honest in their heart. Uh, the person who lives close with God and has no deception. And then that beautiful one in Psalm, uh, I think it's going to be 84, is the one who walks in the veil of thorns and turns the veil of thorns, and God turns it into a, a spring waters for them. So I really began to deeply see that your ashray, if I may, is tested when life really doesn't go your way. Now we're going to find out who has deep meaning. Because if you can hold your deep meaning in spite of finding yourself in the veil of thorns, that means you've cultivated Ashrei. So Ashrei was the operative component to Osher. Exactly. Right. Ashrei brings it to life. Makes yeah, it active. Yeah, Ashrei, I'll say, is the adjective. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, Osher is the noun. And it, it's used right. now and then in the Torah, but the, the, the Ashrei... Ashrei brings it to life. Yeah. Yeah, okay. so they use Ashrei to say, who, who has Osher? Right, so, so then your piece uh, gave us a two-by-four, and I think if there was one feedback I got more than anything from the piece was just almost the, the, the provocative, almost shocking idea that the happiest character in the Bible was Job. Yeah. And I've read about Job for years. Mm -hmm. William Sapphire wrote a great book on Job as the first dissident, and the last thing I would have expected would be for you to uh, call him. And this was the most controversial part of your article, Job, well, the happiest know, character. I, I didn't know I was going to think that because I sat down and I thought, okay, so who is it? Well, Moshe. Now, Moshe's, you know, he gets angry and he's mad and he doesn't hold, he doesn't hold this ground. And so that, well, King Josiah, you know, who's, who's described as loving God with all his heart, soul, and mind. But we don't know much about King Josiah. So I'm thinking, not Moshe, not Avram, not Yitzhak, not Sarah, not... So I'm saying, like, who's, like, holds the line? And I'm, and I'm thinking, I went, wait a minute, what about the first chapter of Job? And it says he reveres God and turns away from evil and so on and so forth. So he's the, pe the, the archetype of Ashrei. He's the guy. And then it just, David, it just all came clear to me. He's the guy. He's the guy that was the epitome of Ashrei, of Osher, as he's described, and everything was taken away. So does he smash the tablets when he comes down from Mount Sinai? Does he banish Hagar because she's jealous? I mean, does he do any of those things that everybody else does when life goes hard? So, you know, our, our, our sacred ancestors, they're, they're flawed people. And Job doesn't. His integrity was tested. Yes, his integrity and his, his faith in speaking truth in his heart. Correct, yeah. correct. He had almost a deeper faith for truth than he had for anything else. That's exactly Hadover emet bilavavo speaks truth in his heart. Even if it means I'm going to maybe offend God in the way he spoke to him. Well, if God is a God of truth, then God can take it. And that's what happened. So. Take us through this, because this was a very sort of crucial part of your essay. Yes. And you really went into it. Yeah. Well, I, I love the book of Job. I read it many times. And um, Take us through a little bit of that sure. dialogue. Uh, so many people talk about Job as, you know, the, the man who suffered. But they skip the first part is how he suffered, and that is the first two chapters. As I said, this is literature. This is not theology. One should not take the God and Satan of the first two chapters of Job as theology. It's setting up a story about the human condition. So Satan reports up to the heavenly. I just get, you know, God's meeting with all his uh, angels around a, 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 a table in the boardroom. 
And he says, what's happening? And Satan says, well, you know, I've, I've been walking around earth and I noticed your main man, Job. And God says, or, or maybe God says, have you noticed my main man, Job? And he says, yeah, he's, he's reverential. He doesn't do anything wrong. And, and, Job, and Satan says, of course he doesn't because you promised everybody, you know, implying Deuteronomy and Proverbs, if you live life a certain way, God will bless you. So Satan's implying, of course. Why, why wouldn't he revere you? Look, what, look everything you give him to him. So I didn't say this in the article, but I might expand it and say, Satan got to God's Yetzirah. Hmm. So God's Yetzirah is, what, they don't really love me? I reward them if they're good, but you're saying that they're not actually good and love me, they're just working me. So Satan insinuated himself, you might say, into the interior of the divine. The divine finally says, well, test him. Do everything but kill him. So Satan has permission from God in the book of Job to destroy Job's family, kills his sons, burns the crops, kills the animals, destroys everybody around Job. It doesn't kill Job and doesn't kill Job's wife, but everything's taken away. And uh, Satan, uh, and he doesn't curse God. So Satan, Satan comes back to God and said, uh, well, of course, because he doesn't care about anybody else. He doesn't care about his children and his slaves and all that, because uh, I didn't touch him. So God says, okay, you can hurt him, but don't kill him. So Satan comes back, and now Job is suffering with scabs and boils and disease. And all the witnesses are saying, that's proof that you're a sinner. That's exactly right. And Job knows he didn't. Correct. So the, the eloquence of, of the so-called so erstwhile friends of Job is you can almost hear these things in their time, people giving these great talks on how God is just. And there was a lot of plausibility to that idea. Absolutely. So you can imagine the torture that goes through uh, Job himself, where he feels, I must have sinned. If I'm punished this way, I must have sinned. And yet I haven't. He hasn't. So, so, so there's his, a battle between these two. Exactly. So truths. his eloquence matches the eloquence. So if you, if you ever read a person who says, God is just and our suffering, there's a reason for our suffering. You know, are, you know, are we as smart as God? There's a secret to the universe. And I've heard people, well, friends, Job's friends are the most eloquent voices, I think, in human history of that idea. And Job's eloquence matches their eloquence. He holds on. He holds on. dear life. He says, God is just, and I didn't sin. You're wrong. If you think finally, I, he puts God on trial. He, exactly. So finally, God appears out of the whirlwind and like shouts at Job. Who's this man who gives this darkened counsel? I created the earth. And so for, for chapter after chapter, God is, you know, in a kind of a pompous way, describing God's creative power. And, Job, and even that doesn't shake him up. You, it's right? supposed to. So, and so Job, Job like, God confronts him and Job says something like, um, I said my piece and I'm not going to say it again. And you would think he's not an atheist, you yeah, know? Yeah. He He's loves God. He loves God. And, yeah. and God is berating him. Yeah. And he's still holding on with his truth. Yeah. Yeah. So God appears out of the whirlwind and tries to kind of blast him with God's magnificence. And Job says, all right, I'm not, I already said my piece. I'm not saying it a second time. God can't stand it as God is depicted. Remember, it's not theology, it's literature. So God comes back again and really lets Job have it. And Job says, okay, now I'm going to talk. And that, those few lines are some of those brilliant lines in the, uh, in the entire Bible. Tell us. Well, God, you know, so Job finally talks, and God, Job quotes God. And this is where most people who write about the book don't know that in those first few lines, of, I think it's chapter 42, Job is quoting God and quoting himself. So Job says, you know that you can do anything. Now, there's a, it's called krikativ, where people have revocalized it to say, I know you, you can do anything. But the Hebrew actually says, you know you can do anything. And he says, I heard about you. Yeah, and, and that's the very end. my eye yes. has seen you. It's, 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 you ask, who's this person giving murky, murky counsel? Okay, well, yeah, I, I am he. And, and you demanded that I talk, and here's my answer. And then he says, um, uh, I heard about you, but now I've seen you. My eye has seen you. And then comes maybe one of the most potent phrases yeah. in the whole Bible. Yeah. Al ken emas, and therefore I'm disgusted. Venichamti al afar ed efer. And I pity humanity. You know, Mordechai, if there's one thing that freaks out my non Jewish friends, is when I tell them how we have the chutzpah to take on God. Yeah. Yeah. My Christian friends, my Muslim friends, they just, this is the one thing about the Jews they don't get. 
And I think this might be the epitome of this idea. You know, it takes Abraham's uh, challenge of God over Sodom and Gomorrah, but ultimately God wins that one. So Abraham says, for the sake of 10, and God basically saying, there aren't 10 righteous people. And Abraham doesn't say, I don't believe you. You're saying in those two entire cities, there's not 10 people that are, that are hidden good people. So Abraham gives up and God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. So Job, as it were, takes the Abraham arguing with God the whole way and says, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. And I'm disgusted and I pity humanity. Yeah. And then how does God respond? I can imagine God taking a deep breath, and this is, for me, such a beautiful literary moment, for God says to God's self, you know, from this literary perspective, do I bluster or do I come clean? So this is God's moment of truth. And God finally says, I'm angry with Job's friends because Job, you spoke perversely and Job spoke the truth. And the reader is shocked and realized God is repenting for what God did in the first two chapters. It's amazing. And he rebukes. The friends. The friends. Yeah. He says, and Job is now going to pray for you. But the idea that Satan got to God and then Job pushes back. And, and you know, I didn't put this in the article. It's about happiness. But Job brings God to God's moment of truth. And this is just beautiful beyond imagination. So to connect it back to happiness, the the spiritual well-being, the inner strength to be able to do what Job did is a sign of somebody who is fill in the blank. It's someone who, let's say you're able to do the Martin Seligman. You have your signature strengths and you learn how to hone your strengths and you do it under adversity. Nicha, fine. But let's say the person who actually is in a moment where every ounce of their spiritual integrity is called forth. You know, probably the best example would be, would be uh, um, soldiers in combat. When the question is stand and die or run. And there's this, you know, as I've read many soldiers' uh, autobiographies, there's a certain kind of peace that comes over them. Well, I'm going to stand and die and I'm not going to run. And a profound sense of well-being. All the fear goes away because you know you're going to die. Mm -hmm. So the people who write this, of course, didn't die. And... Many people go through a moment, you know, it can be in a terrible job, and you're, you're afraid to quit because you want the medical insurance, you want this, all of a sudden comes and comes over you and says, actually, my dignity's being impaired, and I will accept a few, an unimaginable future of deprivation because this is impairing my dignity. So I've counseled people where I said, look, it's either stay in the job and quit complaining or get out of there because your dignity's being attacked. Make a choice. Because we've come down to it. There's no more counseling to do. The person says, okay, you know what? I'm going to go for dignity. And all of a sudden, they're not scared anymore. Because it's not, and they say, should I trust in God? I said, I said there's no evidence that God takes care of people. I'm sorry. I mean, I'm not God's, I'm not God's uh, press secretary. There's no evidence that God will take care of you if you just quit this job. I said, but I'll tell you one thing. To, to suffer so much continuous indignity is killing you. Right, but there's now we can talk about there's two kinds of suffering, right? Because in a way, Job was had the, the, he's the epitome of the idea of struggle. Yes. But then there's that other kind of struggle where your dignity is being uh, questioned. And how do we distinguish between these two kinds of suffering? Because you're the example you use of somebody who's in a bad job, you know, how... Why can't he infer that he's doing something like Job, for example? Okay, there you go. That's beautiful. Because it's not just suffering. It's suffering for the sake of truth. Mm. And therefore, you know, authenticity. So the people say, well, should I stay and suffer? I say, look, I don't know what your authentic truth is. I don't know if your authentic truth is stop complaining, grow up, and realize jobs are not about people liking you and treating you well. Mm. It's put in a good day's work for an honest wage. Okay. Or is the truth of this moment, people can't treat me like this. I said, I don't know what your truth is. Mm. But once you find what your truth is, courageously act on your truth. And I don't know what that is until you find it. So part of my job as a counselor for people in tough situations is bring them th to the truth of their soul 
and act on it with courage. You know, I have to make a personal confession, Mordechai, because I read your piece five times, and it even had a personal impact on me because it forced me to go so deep because there were so many things in life that make you unhappy. And there's so much struggle that goes on even in my life and the frustrations from the job and the things I try to accomplish and so forth. And then when I uh, peel down all the layers and I realized that deep, deep down I was doing something that I really believed in, that I was doing something for my people and trying to elevate the conversation in the community and so forth. And I said, wow, I think I'm pretty happy. That's exactly, <laughs> exactly you know? right. You strip out the complaining and the accu- accusing and you just strip all those away and you say to yourself, is, am I living a true life by, by being here? Yeah. If so, get my mind around it and push all that unnecessary suffering out to the periphery. And I got to tell you, when I was in the agency business, you know, I had this $300 million agency. We were like, you know, madman living the, the high life. And, you know, it was crazy. It was so much fun, doing so well. It was just great. Uh, but at the end of the day, I was selling baby food and cars, um, you know, and you, you can't compare it. Yeah, that, that's true. But you know, I've counseled people who were selling baby food and they say, my life doesn't have meaning. I said, look, if you're good at getting people to buy a good product, you're adding to the economy, you're helping provide jobs, you're getting something. That's out what to I people. was telling myself yeah. all the time. And listen, yeah. for some people, that is that's, that is as much as they're going to, you know, you're you're doing good work for an honest wage, and you're working for a good product, you're not cheating anybody. Absolutely, and I was telling myself that all the time until I started reconnecting with my past, and I had these visions of my ancestors reciting a kiddush a thousand years ago in some little village in Morocco, and I couldn't believe that I was part of this miraculous story, this miraculous family chain, and I just realized I'm part of this miraculous story. Well, that's Moses coming out of the palace. <laughs> you know? Moses is the prince of Egypt, <laughs> And, and I just said, I'm going to go deeper than just helping the U.S. economy. There you go. So Moses looks out the window. We don't know why Moses walked out to his people, but something happened <laughs> where he said, I don't belong here. So that, that's the Moses. Uh, that for me, Moses is awaking in the palace one day and says, wait a minute, I don't belong here. That is when people have this awakening and they search where they belong. That's like the hero's journey. So for some people, it would be, okay, um, I'm in this thing, making money, I will become a philanthropist, or I will volunteer and help lead a Jewish organization. Or a person like you says, I've had enough of that. I'm going to actually devote myself to the Jewish people. So, you know, that's a sense of calling. You know, and therefore, when one has a sense of calling, uh, and that leads you into your work, reconnecting with your calling is what produces authentic happiness. Because it's not, it's not going to go your way. Yeah, you, you kind of made the idea of struggle, Mordechai, in the piece. This is what I got out of it is you put struggle in a very noble context that in a way you know I, I've read so much I even brought the book today on happy which is the definitive book in popular culture reading I, it before I, 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 I read it a few today. years ago if that's the one and yeah that that's the one and you know as great and popular as it was I never really sensed the it's idea of struggle this idea of 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 pain that you have to go through, it seems to be inherent in your view of happiness. It might just be me and the people who I counsel, and the people who I counsel might choose me because I'm the guy that talks about finding meaning through suffering. So, look, his book is written for maybe certain people who don't have to struggle as much. I've always had to struggle, uh, A, in my life in general, and B, to, to be what I call, call authentically happy. Uh, so, for, for me, the the... You know, I've oftentimes when I've counseled a person and they break through and they say, okay, I'm done criticizing, complaining, condemning, engaging in conflict. I'm done accusing and so forth. And, and I'm going to try to live clean. I say, and now things are going to get worse. They say, but, but why? I said, because the minute you stop all your criticizing, sometimes your spouse is going to say, oh, you could have stopped and you didn't. Mm. And they're going to get 10, 10 times as angry as you. They say, what do I do? I said, well, you, you hold the line. Let him get it out. So, so people say, well, once I become spiritually engaged, won't life get better? I say, no, it won't, actually. Yes. The, what, what's, what I found fascinating is you call the enemy human nature. Yes. Right? And then there's this fascinating section where you say, 
you know, attentiveness to the problems of psychological resistance and inner destructiveness and to the deficiency of will to fight them. This is what's missing. That's exactly the, right. In, in the search for happiness. So you're confronting really the, the devil of inner resistance, correct? Yes. That's rooted in human yeah, nature. Yeah, the Yetzirah. And that's what one has to realize is every time a person says, I'm going on a diet, the Yetzirah wakes up and says, no, you're not. Every time a person says, okay, I'm going to get to all this, I'm going to deal with my procrastination, the Yetzirah smiles and says, we'll see about that. Any time you decide to overcome some part of yourself, your Yetzirah wakes up and says, no, you're not. And sometimes I'm working with a person and, you know, the, the fight comes down to a pinpoint. And I say, you're in the fight of your life and you're in the fight for your life. And you know who knows this? is people in 12-step programs. You know, I teach mm-hmm. once a week at a, at a rehab center to a group of, uh, to a, it's, a, it's a men only. And these men, to stay sober, are in a constant fight of their life and for their life. That doesn't end. So working with people in 12-step programs has taught me a lot about sobriety as happiness. And sobriety means I'm constantly fighting for my life. I'm constantly not going to give in to the craving for whatever the, the drug is. So the rest of us who are not in 12-step programs, we sometimes just you know, create a modus, modus vivendi with a gray mediocrity of life. We don't really engage in the heroic struggle. You know what I find fascinating in all of this is you going as deep as possible where there's just genuine struggle and you confront with the deepest, uh, really, devils that are fighting our, our happiness. And on the other end, there's a whole movement that goes in the complete opposite direction, which is, you know, fake it till you make it, right? If you're not happy, just fake it. Just pretend you're happy and you will become happy. I mean, even Rabbi Nachman would say that if you didn't feel like doing it, just sort of do it, and then the, the emotion uh, will follow. What's your take on that? It's not entirely wrong, because what I say to people is, you know, don't follow your feelings. You know, if, you, if, if you're feeling something, remember, feelings ultimately are a choice. People don't realize that. But for example, let's say I walk out and someone says something mean to me, and my feelings get hurt and I get angry. Well, there's an inner thought that says, I deserve respect, and I deserve civility, and this person disappointed my unconscious expectations. So there's an algorithm that's, that's going, you know, uh, uh, you know, a thousand miles a second. So our, our emotions and feelings, we don't know this, are choices. Once you realize that, then you can say, okay, so I'm going to have a different belief, and the different belief is some people have bad days, and I just, I just walk onto the stage of their life, and they dump it on me. And what I can do is I can hold my emotional center and say, hey, man, you're having a bad day, but I'm not going down there with you. Or I can get mad myself. Mm. What's my choice? So the first thing I'll do is I'll say, I'm not going to be angry. I will not even have the outward appearance of anger. And then I will go in and do the inner work. Mm. So there is something to it. Right. Act virtuously, but then become virtuous. Mm. And I don't think acting virtuously automatically leads to virtue. It just is a holding place so you can do the work. What's, uh, I mean, Dennis Prager has this very interesting take on happiness. He, he calls it a mitzvah mm-hmm. where he sees I'm happy not just for me, but I'm happy for others. So if you're, in a, if you're in a bad mood and you're invited to Shabbat dinner, don't go. If you're going to be grouchy in front of other people, stay home. That's right. But once you're around other people, you have a certain obligation. That's exactly to, right. To share a certain, you know, cheerfulness mm-hmm. and happiness to make others happy. Mm-hmm. What's your take on that? Absolutely. I, I, I've known people who, you know, are depressed and uh, it's affecting, let's say, the spouse and kids. And they say, well, I'm just being honest. And I say, be honest with yourself. That's fine. Honest with God. But there's a deeper truth, which is, we don't have the right to inflict our pain on other people. Mm. We actually have a duty to present, put as much goodness in the world as possible. So people say to me, that's not authentic. I said, it's exactly authentic because there's true two truths. One is the truth of your inner pain, which you got to work through. The second is not to inflict your pain on other people, which is also true. So you've got to live two truths at the same time. And, and I remember when I was unhappy and I was raising my kids, and they would come home, and I had a choice to make. Do I, do I express my honest feelings, 
and show my unhappiness. And I got to tell you, I, I, I try to restrain it all the time. And I would put on a cheerful face, and that, that made me happy <laughs> because I knew that I was helping my kids. That's exactly right, because yeah. you were doing your duty, which is to be as good a parent as you can be even during a time of suffering. That was a deeper core truth for me than the truth of just expressing my honest emotions. There you go. That's what that's Osha, which is in spite of my pain, I will do my duty, which is to be a good father. Mm. And there are so many parents that don't understand this simple this simple truth of what it means to be a good parent. You know, for example, so many parents have the checklist for their kids. You know, the kid has to do this, this, and this, and this in order to get the parents' approval or, or for the kid to be happy. And, you know, I have courses that I teach called Parenting the Soul of Your Child and, and understanding what it means to, to care for a soul is very different from leading a child to a, a checkoff list life. And, um, and one, par- one part of it is, is making space for the kid mm. and taking the, par- the parent's needs out. So we're talking here really about looking for your deepest truth because there's, there's a hierarchy of truths. Yep, and you look absolutely. for your deepest truth. And at that moment, my deepest truth was to take care of my kids. Yes, and that, that takes reflective capacity. Here we're going back to the inner life traditions that I do believe to be authentically happy, one has to have a, uh, an inner life practice. And I actually wrote this in the article that people who do not take on a daily inner life practice, I can't help them. Well, this is perfect segue to the final part of our uh, conversation which is you teach a path that's got four components, and right. I really want our, our listeners to get a good sense for these four components because at the end of the day, this is really about not taking a superficial approach to happiness. Let's go through one of these steps at a time, the first one. Okay, the first one is chazon, chazon, which means a relatively detailed vision of the kind of person you want to be in specific situations. So, for example, how will I be in the morning with my children? Mm. I will get up before my kids. I'll get dressed. I will present them as a clean person with their teeth brushed. Mm. I will do my daily practice. No anger, no criticism, no blaming, no accusing. I'll hold the holy center. What do I want to be like when I'm in front of my congregants there on, you go. on Shabbat? There you go. I have to, I, every time before I go downstairs and teach, I go through an inner uh, centering, Wh- what do I want to be when I'm down there, and especially what I do with a heckler? What do I do with a person who's in You do that all the time? Mordecai? Every time Amazing. I teach. Every time I teach, I do an inner centering because I have to exude a sense of, first of all, a sense of well-being and also a sense of depth. What's remarkable in all of this is uh, the sense of repetition because I'm, I'm pretty sure that that vision is consistent from one week to the next. Absolutely. Some, yeah. But you feel that human nature makes us, it conspires to make us forget. The Yetzirah this is wants Re- you to forget. This is Rebbe Nachman. Rebbe Nachman says sin comes from forgetting. And it's like tzitzit. Leman tiskru. So you shall remember. So you have to remember what your vision is. And, you know, sometimes I, uh, I'll be counseling a person and they say, well, you would not believe what my wife did. I said, what did your wife do? And they said, well, she did this. And I said, and you're supposed to do what? They go, oh, that's right, not criticize. They say, I forgot. Why did I forget? I said, did you do your daily practice? No. I said, do you understand? We're not, we're not talking about an option here. If you really want to grow, you have to have a relatively detailed vision for what you want to be in specific circumstances through your day and rehearse it to yourself. You know, this might be the most important point of all. I mean, just at least tactically, because if you see, uh, I know people who've read, you know, one self-help book after another. They don't, they don't, if they don't translate it to a daily practice, forget about it. They're right. just going to read the next self-help book. Well, I'm not saying they shouldn't. Right. But, you know, I had one uh, possible road rage incident. I was making, I had just finished my jujitsu training, so I was all pumped up with fighting adrenaline. I'm making a turn. A guy steps into the sidewalk as I'm making my turn. He looks at me and he, and he flips me off, right? And I was in fighting mode. And I remembered a rule, never get out of the car. <laughs> now, I didn't get out of the car, but I almost got out of the car. So now when I get in my car, I say, never get out of the car. Wow. And I've had people come to me who've had road rage incidents mm. 
whose spouses refuse to drive with them. This is mostly men. Mm-hmm. And the wives are saying, I will not get in the car with you until you work on this road rage. So guys come and meet with me. You say, how do I get on my road rage? I said, before you get in your car, as you're sitting in the car, you say to yourself, I will not become angry. When someone cuts me off, they're having a hard day. You got to set yourself. So these four steps you do every, every day. day, several times a day. And so the first one is, is vision. vision. A relatively detailed vision that is specific to situations in which I will predictably find myself. So how do I want to be today when I go into the Jewish journal? Exactly. When you walk in, and even person-specific, this, for example, you might say to yourself, I want to be the kind of a boss who remembers what people are going through. Hmm. So, oh, I'm going mm-hmm. to the Jewish journal. Oh, this employee's going through that. Hmm. This employee is not performing as well as I want. So you got to, in a way, say, my detailed vision for being a boss of these specific people. Mm. So when I go into the office, I try to think about who am I going to meet there? Uh, you know, what's likely to happen? How do, I, how do I be the best employer I can be? You plan, you plan. Plan, yeah. exactly. My wow. vision is pl- pl- detailed planning for the day. Wow. Okay, so that's one. Number two, intention or will? Yeah. Um, right, so the will in Hebrew is ratzon. Uh, and and intention is kavanah. I, I kind of like kavanah because it it connects also to the spiritual inner life uh, connection to to prayer and so forth. Meaning, direct directedness of consciousness. Um, so it's both will and directedness. And here's what I find: people come out of my office counseling session, they go home, and the will evaporates when provoked. Mm-hmm. And so. We're back to human nature. We're back to human nature. So what's going to happen is your yetzahara, the minute there's a test, will evaporate the will, and uh, uh, and you lo- you forget everything. So therefore, there's a, there's a there's a strange thing called the will. Only one person that I know has written about it well, an Italian Jewish uh, psychologist philosopher named Roberto Asagioli. He wrote a book called The Act A C T of Will, and. It is the most excellent book on the will I've uh, I've ever read. I reread it constantly. So he, I mean, he, the detail that he goes into, admirable detail on what the will is, the modes of the will, the stages of the will, all kinds of things. So I say to people, if you're serious about the will, you got to memorize Roberto Saggioli. Okay, but it's something like, um, okay, so for example, I'll just say these three things. Here's what I here's the vision I have of myself. Now let me evaluate whether I can really do this at this point in my life. How much of it can I do? Will this get me what I want in life? What kind of rewards do I need? What kind of reciprocation do I need? So you go really go through the nature of your will. So for example, a person can say, um, I want to stop criticizing. I want you to help me by, when I do it, don't get mad at me. Please say, honey, you're criticizing again. And that'll really help me. Mm. Because if you criticize back, I probably am going to degrade and lose everything. So a, a critical component here is you're talking about daily contemplation of this idea. Absolutely. Right? It's not just something you read once and that's it. So this is part of the daily yeah. routine. And this is, that's why it's not insight therapy. See, you don't walk away with an insight. Every single day you, 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 you rehearse your vision. And it, it's almost like in the old days when you did a carriage return on right. your typewriter, or when you hit save and it engraves it on the disc, there's something, an internal moment when you say, and I hereby will it. So in the same way that somebody will be addicted to getting on that treadmill every day for 30 minutes without fault and gets into the habit of taking care of their bodies, this is the same thing, but in terms of taking care of your, your happiness, your soul, your well-being. Yeah, so I have a metaphor for that. Um, you know, I have heart disease and a very variety of aches and pains, and I have to work out every day. So I go to my jiu-jitsu club. And so the minute I think about it, my Yetzirah says, you're too old. I say, okay, so I will, I'll just go down there. And you're going to get hurt. I said, I promise I won't hurt you. Well, there's big guys there. I say, I promise. I'm, 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 I'm negotiating with him. I said, let me just get my clothes on, then we'll decide. He goes, okay. Because, you know, he's strong, but he's not very smart. So I can say, I'm just going to get my clothes on. He goes, okay, but you're not going today. I'm not going today. So I finally said, look, I got my clothes on. How about we just go down there and sit against the wall and watch the other guys? He goes, okay. And if I see a light white belt, he goes, okay, only light white belts. So I got, a, I got him to get me to the studio. So I'm sitting there and say, well, how about a blue belt? 
Okay, Russell, that blue belt. Yeah, you did okay last you, time. Yeah. So the next thing I know, I'm fully engaged. I can't boss him around. My Yetzahara is very strong, but I can outwit him. Mm-hmm. So what I realize is if I give him what he wants, he'll kill me. You know, when you have heart disease, you got to stay on your diet. You got to do cardio. There's a lot of things you got to do so you don't die. He doesn't mind that because he's lazy. He doesn't want he doesn't want pain. He doesn't want to feel bad. And I gotta say, man, I'll take care of you. Right. So I work with my resistance every day. It's so interesting because in your case, you have no problem doing these four steps that people have a major problem with. This idea of the vision and the attention and the next two that we're gonna go through. This is the one that's not that obvious for people. Going to the gym is a lot more obvious because you see it's my body and the endorphins kick in. I feel great when I work out. But this other thing. Yes, uh, it's it's exactly like physical training. In fact, I often use martial arts metaphors of, you know, so uh, for example, in martial arts, you know, let's say you're in a bad position, someone's going to do a choke or an arm lock. And there's a defense. And the person will say, oh, well, how do I do it? I said, well, that's where the fight is. There's a center. If you can move your arm a centimeter, you've broken the arm lock. Mm. Well, how do I do it? I said, it's the fight of your life, man. Your, your entire life comes down to moving your wrist a centimeter to escape that arm lock. It's the same thing spiritually. You're stuck in a moment. There's conflict at work with the spouse, with the kids. And you remember your vision. And you say, oh. There's this one thing I'm supposed to say, which is, you know, maybe you're right. Just memorize that line. Maybe you're right. There's a Talmudic specificity in all this. Exactly. I teach people scripts, detailed scripts that they need to write down and rehearse each, you know, per person. And the scripts helps with the will because when you will it to say the script, you don't have to figure out what to do because you already have a script. You know, and most people's lives are pretty repetitive. So one way you help the will is to give it a script. But imagine you have a father with five kids. Yeah. So he's doing this vision exercise every morning, and your your call for specificity means that he's now going to have a vision for how he is with each individual kid. And As opposed to, I'm going to be a mensch, I'm going to be a good father. No, you want five different visions, including the vision of how he's going to be with his wife and with his mother and who else. And in specific situations. And then understand that it has to be funded by will, which is too much of a mystery for us to go into. But when you go into it, that moment when you say, I hereby will it, and therefore I will myself to do the next step, which is the specific skills. Right, that's step number three, Mm -hmm. specific skills. Talk about that. So the skills would be, uh, you know, for example, I will oftentimes counsel couples where a person will come and say, I want to be heard, I want to be seen, I want to be affirmed. And I say, don't use big words. Use small words. They say, what do you mean? What exactly do you want that a person could see on a videotape, okay, that could be recorded? What do you want? Is your motivation clean? Is the goal clear? If you get it, will you feel better? communicate it, exactly what you want the other person to do, not think, feel, understand, but do, and be willing to take no for an answer. Well, that's where the gold is. People freak out. But, but if I say no, I said, okay, so don't take no and fight if that's what you think. So instead of saying, I want to feel affirmed, what do you want them to do? You know what people say to me? I, I don't know what I want them to do. I said, well, then how can they possibly know? So the skill is don't use big words. Use small words, communicate it, one, two, three go-arounds, take no for an answer, and decide what you're going to do next. David, people can't do it. They say, oh, I forgot. Yeah, oh, yeah, you're right. I'm supposed to tell them exactly what I want them to do. And they say, what about that take no for an answer part? I said, because if you can't take no for an answer, you're just going to go back and fight. But then they just don't do what I want them to do. I say, and... You didn't, you didn't get your way, and now you're going to get angry? I said, what, are we four years old here? Mm-hmm. They go, okay, remind me again. So I said, okay, ask for something achievable, clear, with a time stamp on it that's actually visible, vis- vis- that one can actually see. Motivation is clean. Goal is clear. A behavior, and take no for an answer. And they write it down. Come back the next week. You know, I, I forgot that. What is it again? So... They didn't do it every day. No, they didn't rehearse it. They didn't rehearse. And you say here, interesting, near the end of your article, you know, uh, I have notified 
many counseling clients that if they don't engage in a daily practice, I can't work with them anymore. They can't just stand there peering through the window of the house of God. They must batter down the wall impeding their entry. There you go. That's it. That's it. People just don't make the commitment. And so I say to a person, look, I'm getting bored saying the same thing every week. So you make a change or you got to look for another person because I, I just I just don't I don't know how to work with you if you won't do your daily practice so we can move ahead a little bit. And that's what you don't get from a self-help book. You don't have another person across the yeah. thing. Yeah. Just, uh, yeah. So I, 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 I teach specific skills. And then when, uh, see, see, and when a person comes back, let's say a person with a, uh, a very unruly child. And so some parents get angry, you know, get angry at children. And I teach them. You know, you know, a sense of, um, look, here's what I need from you, and if I'm not going to get it, here's what I'm going to do, as opposed to, you're a bad kid, and you know, the, 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 the criticizing of children, which I, I don't think is a good idea. And they come back and say, Rabbi, I feel like I remembered to do it. When my daughter was doing this, and I said, look, here's the deal. When you do that, you know, it makes my life harder. I don't need my life to be harder. So I'm going to give you a choice. You can either do this or that. And if you do this, here's what I'm going to do. Right? You make the choice. And you, you talk to the kid. You know, and the parent says, God, I did it. And it was so great. So you have you've really have a whole bunch of stories, right? Oh, I Success have, stories. Of, of people who come back and said, I finally got it. And David, you want to talk about authentic happiness? They're beaming. They're radiating with, I got control of my life. I have wisdom and virtue. And I'm on, I'm on my game. And my, my family is better. And my kids are better. And my, my marriage is better. Because they're actually living a life of wisdom and virtue. And, and you're bringing virtue to hard work. And there's something inherently true about that. I mean, we all have these memories. When I used to work on Ola magazine, and we wouldn't sleep for two days. We'd be there till four in the morning, and it was just exhausting. But the sense of authentic happiness that I would get, usually these moments when I've worked the hardest. And, and you're calling for this. And in a way, just the investment in effort mm -hmm. that your people are making to speak yeah. to, that alone mm -hmm. gives you a sense of, of genuine well-being. It, it absolutely does. And this is where the, the uh, similarity between rabbinic Judaism and Stoicism is really profound, which is, I'll give you a little anecdote. Uh, I was at a Sukkot dinner 30-some years ago or more, yeah, 35 years ago, and uh, uh, I was in my doctoral program my fellowships were running out. I was a single dad with two kids. And so I, I, I left the sukkah, came home, put my kids to bed, and then went on the sidewalk. And uh, people were at the sukkah, walked by, and he knows, he says, Finley, why is the down face? I said, look, I got my qualifying exams coming. I've got two little kids. I'm running out of money. And I, my life is, is, is tough. He says, I feel well, like Job. Yeah. So <laughs> he, says, he says, but it's Sukkot. I said, therefore, he says, well, you shall only be happy. I said, how do you expect me to be happy with everything I just told you? And this guy says to me, that's your problem. That was like a gift <laughs> from God. I yeah. said, oh, well, I have my kids, and I'm finishing a doctorate, and God gave me a good mind, and I'm sharpening it, and I'm going to be a rabbi one day. All of a sudden, I just changed my head. I became ecstatic. And there were some core truths there, raising kids. Yeah. Connecting to your tradition. Everything I love. I love reading. I, I'm doing everything I love. I just lost sight of it. So when he said, you're supposed to be happy because it's sukkahs. And I said, how can I be happy? He said, that's your problem. You figure it out. I thought, okay, it's a mitzvah to be happy, to be in simcha. I got to figure it out. That, David, that was a life-changing moment for me. Well, it's a perfect segue to the fourth step, which is enlightened reflection. Yeah, enlightened reflection is... People start, the Yetzirah sneaks back in, people start lying to themselves, okay? For example, they have visions for themselves being something they can never be, or their vision, they've set their goal too low. So oftentimes the Yetzirah sneaks in and messes us when we're trying to set our visions for different things. Or we language it wrong. Uh, you know, a person can say, I don't want to be reactive, and when my spouse is reactive, I say, we're not talking about your spouse. How'd that sneak back in there? Right? I said, we're talking about you. you holding the line. Well, don't they have to? I said, no, they don't have to do anything. We're talking about you now. So what I find is when people work out their vision, the will, the skill, the Yetzirah sneaks back in and actually changes what I taught them, changes the script. Mm. So therefore, enlightened reflection says, is my vision challenging but doable? 
am I funding it with will? I'm recovering will every day. Or am I learning the right skills and applying them the right way? So what I found is not only do you do the, the vision, the will, and the skill, you reflect on it every day as well. And the reflection is a very spiritual experience because to, to do the reflection is this, you have to stand above the work. Mm. And when you stand above the work, it's as if you step into God or spirit or whatever you want to call it. There's a very holy moment when you're looking down at yourself doing the work and you're backing into, into the divine embrace. You know, as I, as I reflect on all of this that we're talking about today, it strikes me that it's the exact opposite of the stimuli that we're bombarded with all day long in a capitalistic society, which is you can get it all and it costs you nothing. There's no sacrifice to be made. Tastes great, less filling. I know, because yeah, yeah. I was the enemy. Yeah. I had an ad agency yeah. for 20 years yeah. and this was our thing. You, yeah. can, you can have it all. Yeah. You, can, you can have a really cool personality if you just buy this car. All it <laughs> right. is is cutting corners. Yeah. That's yeah. all it is. Yeah. And it's yeah. so seductive, yeah. this idea, oh, my God, I'm going to put $1,000 on red, blackjack. I'm going to make $1,000 for doing nothing. Yeah. And this is the biggest yetzerah yeah. that's in the atmosphere. Yeah, exactly. So the other day, I, I, I was hungry, and I, I'm not supposed to eat bread, and I'm not supposed to eat any meat or cheese, and so I have to have you know, certain kinds of fish. So I walk into Ralph's to get what I want. And I'm looking right. I'm looking left. I can't have any of this. <laughs> and I'm walking through the store. Do you guys have any sushi? Uh, and I'm walking through the store, and everything's saying, buy me. And my yes hurrah says, you can slip a little bit today. And I'm saying, I can't have any of this because I want to be healthy. Right. And deep down, we know the truth is that everything good in life takes hard work. But the advertisers have convinced us through the yes that, yes, the, 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 there are these miracle kind of products. All, all you got to do is give us your money, and you'll see, and it's, and it's all sort of a, a big hoax. And yeah, not only that, but oftentimes the wisdom from the, from the I say some t caricature of the 70s, which is uh, people say to me, aren't I supposed to be honest with my feelings? I said, no. Do not share your feelings with your spouse when you're toxic. Hmm. Um, uh, I say the secret to a good marriage is lack of communication. <laughs> when you're upset. So people have just wrong-headed things. Right, and you can't remember that unless you do these exercises every day. You have to do it every day. Because it's so easy to forget. So I just want to end on your last paragraph, which obviously I loved. There is a Jewish idea of authentic happiness, and there is a path, often rocky and dark and inhabited by demons, that will our demise. Find your inner Job and suffer through the pain of resistance to live a life of truth. That is the Jewish path to happiness. Totally. Thank I you so swear much. Swear by it. Okay, thank Mordechai you, David. Finley. Been a pleasure. God you made me very you. happy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy too. Okay. I hope I'll stay happy. Good. Take care.